Learn more about the albums you love with Dissect, a music analysis podcast hosted by me, Cole Kushner, a lifelong musician and composer. Each season of Dissect dives deep into a single album, forensically dissecting the music, lyrics, and meaning of one song per episode. Our newest season is covering Tyler the Creator's Igor, a beautifully honest album in which Tyler explores love, communication, masculinity, and truth. Listen to Dissect today only on Spotify, because great art deserves more than a swipe. This episode is brought to you by Thomas's. Thomas's presents Technique with Tom. Slicing an English muffin with a butter blade? Boulder Dash! Just pull apart with your hands and marvel in the nooks and crannies' splendor. For each one is unique like a snowflake. Thomas's. Huzzah! A toast to breakfast. This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment, so it's important to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with 25000 miles on, I got it to over 200,000 miles because I took care of it. You know how you take care of a car? You take care of the maintenance, the oil, the brakes, all that stuff. And if you don't, you can have a car just completely fall apart. When your car needs maintenance, head to Jiffy Lube. They provide automotive excellence at speed. Get your oil changed, brakes checked, Tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car. Jiffy Lube, car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit jiffylube.com. The man's an ox, slow and stupid. <laughs> Petty. Krieger's a separatist. My pay's a neo-republican. Separatists, partisans, human cultists, galaxy petitionists, they are lost, all of them lost. I am the only one with clarity of purpose. Listeners, welcome. This is Sound Only, and I'm Justin Jarity. And I'm Micah Peters. We're your Sound Only co-hosts, as you can tell from our cold open this week, here to record our deepest, darkest thoughts at last. We're talking about Andor. We are back. We're back. We're talking about some Disney stuff. Disney. You thought we was ducking the fade. You know, you know, you, you know what? We, we, I, I gotta eat my hat on this Andor show. Probably because fire, Tony Gilroy, this shit is fine. Yeah, this shit is fine. Probably because Tony Gilroy has absolutely no respect for the Star Wars universe in general. <laughs> <laughs> like, <laughs> which he said, I mean, like, I think that this is part of, like, the press run for this show is them talking about the hectic editing process of Rogue One, which, if you remember, like, had way too many cooks in the kitchen and then randomly in the last hour becomes one of the best war movies, just period. <laughs> like, 
but like have is save to say nothing about like the Star Wars part of it. I think that there's like a lot of backstory stuff and Jen Erso did it because her dad that actually kind of cheap is the third act. Um but I think it was John John Gilroy, the brother of Tony Gilroy, film editor, um was basically talking about how like it's there's still a lot of this stuff is like under NDA so they can't really say which part is them and which part was whatever but like from the tone of conversation the tone of the comments which is very like you know like trying to describe something to you without giving any of like you know proper pronouns (laughs) seems to be that like the Gilroys are like involved in like oh you have no idea how to like land this plane so Tony Gilroy is just like, I'm going to come in and make another story about the Battle of Britain, which this basically is. Basically, that's what Star Wars is. It's There's like this scrappy resistance on the ground, fighting on a terrain that they understand better than jackbooted thugs coming in to overtake the territory. The TIE fighters are the Luftwaffe zipping overhead, bombing stuff like, you know, the Royal Air Forces, uh, the X-Wings and the Galaxy Fighters, etc. So he understands it that way and like the last hour for sure, because he was just like, oh, I understand this to be a story about why would all these people ultimately sacrifice their lives? Because they're not going to survive into the next Star Wars story. We know that because of, you know, like the the way that anthology films work. So why would they choose to give up their lives? Like, and I guess that's really what Andor is about, is like, how would somebody like Andor, who has no reason to play for any team, like, give it all in service of anything, like, for any reason. Um, and I think that that's, like, an interesting thrust for the story. I agree. I think before we even get into really talking through Andor, because we got a lot of episodes and a lot of hours to do, like, can we, like, Let's stick on Rogue One just for a bit here. Because sure. it's like, it's a kind of, like, in the, I, I mean, I guess in the context of all the Star Wars stuff, right? It's sort of, Rogue One is just so different from the other movies, right? Like the mainline movies. Um, I think a lot of people might agree that the, the mainline trilogy, like, sequels, right? So mm-hmm. Abrams, Johnson, Abrams, struggled a bit. Right. Yeah. And, but they have that kind of whimsical Star Warsian tone. They, I think they make a lot of mistakes with the themes of Star Wars. Right. And a lot of the sort of messaging. But they're going for that sort of big thing. Whereas Rogue One. Right. Rogue One feels different to watch. You're feeling like you're watching a movie of an entirely different scale and tenor. Right. And I think. I don't know what I would say, right, about Rogue One. I like that movie. I like Rogue One more than I like any of the three, like, episodes seven, eight, or nine, right? Yeah. But I think, like, that's kind of, honestly, that thing that you're, like, trying to carve out is distilled yeah. in uh, Dom Hall Gleason's, like, presence in the, in that trilogy. Where it's sort of like on the bridge, like whether he's talking to subordinates, to Kylo Ren, 
to uh, what's his name that got cut in half during the last Jedi? I can't even remember. You only get half a bar, dog. I'm sorry. <laughs> um, it's sort of like almost like this sort of office comedy that's going on underneath yeah. all of the dramatic, yep. like mm-hmm. galaxy raising <laughs> genocide things yep. that are happening elsewhere. Yeah. <laughs> Whereas, like, I think in. In Rogue One, like with Mendelssohn, I mean, like Mendelssohn is also like is its own sort of thing. Yeah, it's like (laughs) its own sort of thing. (laughs) But like, uh, it's sort of like you are these people are more hateful for their indifference than for like you know they are for doing cruelty with a smirk, I guess. Um, that you get like in the trilogy or more of the mainline titles, which I think contributes to the tone that you're talking about. Yeah, you're right. It's like, it's like, or maybe even you're talking about Donald Gleason. It's like, I would also say maybe that's embodied too by the Adam Driver, right? By Kylo, right? Because it's sort of like when you're dealing with somebody who, okay, in the mainline trilogy, Kylo is, I mean, they make him ambivalent and sort of flip-floppy, right? But it's sort of like his kind of goofy, almost extremely online portrayal of like the sort it's of so anchoring like, villain. <laughs> it's 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 like he makes the most sense in like The Last Jedi because it's sort of this, like the frustrated, like... Oh, nobody understands me, teen energy, like emotionally abusive boyfriend thing, like trying to burst out of this like story that, I mean, honestly, maybe Ryan Johnson, the director himself for a story that felt contained by, because I don't know, like if you want to watch these movies as movies about making movies or whatever, Mm -hmm. um, it makes the most sense in that. And then like, it just like, it, like uh, in the third, in the third movie, JJ Abrams literally has him put the helmet back together. And, you know, also Ray is a Skywalker and this is a love story now. Yeah. And it's just like the, the tone is all over the place. Like, yeah, you might as well be watching twilight at certain points in the mainline trilogy or the mainline sequel trilogy. Right. Yeah, because I mean, of, like, he said some hateful, unforgivable <laughs> shit there in the second movie. And she was just like, okay, cool, you know? You're nothing. Then, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it means nothing. You're nothing. Um, and it's like Rogue One, right? In, it sort of, Rogue One interrupts those sequels and is kind of like, you know, what if we didn't use way too many napkins? You know, <laughs> and and I think the other thing I want to sort of establish about my thoughts about Rogue One before you get into Andor is that like, I don't think it totally like there's something about Rogue One that as much as I really love that kind of alternative tone and the that sort of more grounded, hey, this is a war movie we're doing. It's in space, but this is a war movie like right. that feeling. I, I love that. I love that. I do think that even then the movie kind of. It doesn't necessarily totally stick to one's ribs. Like, I think that I, yeah. it's almost like you kind of need Andor. And it's why I'm excited to talk about it this week because you kind of, Rogue One is cool, but it feels like it's, it kind of doesn't necessarily totally 100% come together as something that 
can go toe to toe with, you know, big budget mainline Star Wars thing, right? And then you get Andor, and Andor gets the space to execute, to develop, to to let you spend time. I think with that idea of like every war is a bureaucratic war, right? Like every right. every war is a largely bureaucratic affair. And it's not to say that like make Star Wars boring and tedious or something like that, but it it, it reminds me a lot of like. I don't remember if we ever talked about it on this podcast, like um, Shin Godzilla, like Hideaki Anno's Godzilla. But like to me, the the beautiful thing about that movie is how how like eighty percent of Hideaki Anno's live action Godzilla movie is all of the kind of really intense walking down office hallway stuff from Ava, where it's just like it's just like yeah, th- these people are at work in the trenches having arguments in conference rooms about shit. And it just works because they, it's just like, I know gets the dynamics of it. He gets the dynamics of office politics. He gets how to shoot an office or a conference room in a way to make it look interesting and dynamic. Yeah. And, and like to have like two dimensional characters progress into like round characters in ways you might not expect or debate you with, you know, like how something is presented. Like, for instance, like for one, like I knew that I was going to like this show when like around that sort of like, oh, like every war is a bureaucratic war sort of thing when they introduced uh, Rupert Vansittart, who's like this sort of like just, I mean, the idea of fat cat sheriff of like you know the outer rim rolling around in his office chair to look at this like stomach ulcer of an upstart like listen we just need to make the trains run on time I'm going on sabbatical I'm jangling my keys right now (laughs) and I like the fact that he looks at Kyle Soler who plays like Cyril Karn like with like just like real just slimy preening excellence like in this sort of like I need to prove myself to the to the board role um like and looks at him with contempt for having like tailored his suit beyond specifications I was like all right cool I'm gonna like this show (laughs) like also like uh the Carolyn uh go character who like is kind of like having this sort of her own machinations on the side with her assistant, you know, alongside the boardroom, which is trying to, you know, in in mission statement at least, crush the rebellion before it starts. But she is doing, she just seems more dedicated in a way that would suggest that maybe she's a mole. Maybe she works for the Rebel Alliance, and then you really find out that's not the case, like, <laughs> as the show goes on. And... It's also, like, I gotta say, like, she does an amazing job as Dedra, like, as, like, a really hateful, like, uh, inspector from the peer review board kind of character. Yeah. Um, Really great facial acting because, like, if you are really, if you're paying attention, like, she never is not flaring her nostrils. (laughs) Like, she smells something whether like it's in the boardroom or talking to somebody like wherever she's at, like it's literally it's 
I feel like it's, you know, a pointed choice to make the character like more unpleasant to you as a viewer. But also it's like she's constantly sniffing out like inconsistencies in the world, which is her job. Um, so, yeah, I mean, like this, the show is like really attuned to like the finer notes of those sort of things, that sort of like mundane excitement you get from watching Shin Godzilla, like where a monster is stomping around outside, you're spending a lot of time in an office and you're exhilarated by it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think we can, when we get deeper into talking about this season, we'll we'll talk more about that stuff just because they're, you know, a lot of those scenes of like them having pissing matches <laughs> in that big white conference room. Yeah. <laughs> and then sort of like licking their wounds in their offices after the fact and being like, you can't see these documents. You don't have permission. <laughs> we'll get to that. It's like, one thing I, th- one, I think the moment I knew I was going to like the show was actually the first shot. Like I was talking to Allison Herman about this. I um I was sitting with my wife, right? And I was we were on the couch and I was like, I'm gonna watch Andor. I'm gonna I finally wanna get into this. And you watch first shot, right? And when you see Diego Luna walking against that dark, rainy backdrop, I just kept I looked at it, I was like, is he in Greenpoint? You know what I mean? It's like Star Wars has always had this problem of its vision of the future is so I mean, I think Lucas it's so definitely far away and filtered and projected, yeah, of, like onto and something a larger. Yeah, yeah, like I think it's cartoonish. Like, it's too yeah, cartoonish. At it's this point. too cartoon. Like there's there's CGI animals too quick. Like it's like we have to imagineer too often mm-hmm. when we're talking about like. Like it's like the, I, the 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 big BTS videos with like the swelling orchestral music where everybody's talking about what an emotional experience it's been with makeup all over their face type of shit. Yeah. Like Andor doesn't have that. Like you're it's it's a space goat because we glued two other horns onto the side. Like it's like it's that right. close to it's that close to reality. It's just slight unreality. Like so him walking across that catwalk and I know what shot you're talking about like feels like this is just like a port town somewhere in space like yep. you know mm-hmm. not like a not a space port town just like a port town somewhere in space where there might even still be boats you know regular ones that that run on water <laughs> yeah and it's almost like audacious in that the, that early like a lot of the early stuff looks way more interested in looking like Blade Runner than it is in yeah. looking like Star Wars. And I, I feel like a lot of times when people want to talk about the kind of goofiness, the pl- the planetary goofiness and cartoonishness of Star Wars, they focus on stuff like the Ewoks and, and Return of the Jedi. But I think the quality I'm more so talking about is so specifically, remember like the beginning of Attack of the Clones where they have the stupid like assassination plot with the sleeping dart and oh, the and yeah. the, they're in the floating cars and stuff. It's like it's it's when Lucas sort of drags Star Wars even beyond the pod race in Phantom Menace, right? Inside of the clones, it's just you're basically watching the Jetsons. You know what I mean? And it's like yeah. it's like I don't know. A great thing about Andor to me is that it feels like the, it's this reversion to like. Yeah, they're flying cars. Who cares? You know what I mean? It's like it's it's futuristic, right? Everything looks futuristic. It looks space age, but it looks space it's, age in a way that's not rubbing it in your face. That like, isn't this cool? Yeah, it's, it's flying cars and droids and aliens. It's like way less cringe about it. Well, it's like the sort of 
sleight of hand that turns a vacuum cleaner into a roving like personal droid in 1977 yeah. like that feels like it's back a little bit like yeah we got to figure out how to make this look like it's 3047 and also 1947 at the same mm-hmm. time mm-hmm. With fifty dollars and one room to home, to Home Depot, type of like ingenuity going on, like that yeah. feels like obviously this costs a lot of money to make, but like it feels closer to the gr- to the ground, and that it's not like so overtly self consciously Star Wars. Yeah, for sure. Like and that confidence pays dividends. I think, yeah, for sure. Like I mean, like even like the point about like the tailoring on the suits just feels like sort of like peeking out at like, hey, like these clothes we're wearing are a little bit ridiculous, but like we're gonna just keep on moving with the story. Yo, Mon um, Mothma's fits? Mon Mothma's beautiful gowns. <laughs> Her whole apartment, gowns. bro. Mon Mothma's apartment though? Like, the, yes. Yeah. Is, that, is that one scene from Gatsby where he's just running around throwing down shirts on, 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 <laughs> on, 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 on what's her name's face? Like, it's just like, there's no, I, like, it's, it is just excess. Yeah, yeah. But it's like, that also feels completely separate from the rest of the story that's going on in a pointed way. Like, yeah. I think that also the thing that you're talking about where we're in the Jetsons, like in the Attack of the Clones chase scene, is really like a tour de force rather than like something that is functional and you telling a story about the way that Coruscant like works. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Whereas like even like all the garnishes and like the ornate place settings and like the gowns and the cars and the like the flying uh uh rolls royce that she has like is like there's attention is called to it because it's done intentionally not like you know hey this is like a thing that also exists in this world isn't it cool and fun and don't you want to live here yeah, the word the word I would just sort of emphasize that you said was functional because it's it's like yes, that Rolls Royce, that little art gallery. You know what I mean? It's like every place again. It, it's like the thing we're contrasting it with is the the Jetson stuff in Attack of the Clones. It's also like that stupid conveyor belt scene with Natalie Portman, where it's just like, what is this factory? This factory clearly just exists as yeah, like a video <laughs> game level, right? And it's like there aren't video game levels in Andor. That's the thing. It's not just like very thin, vapid video game design logic to why things look like they do. You know, it feels like you're like Diego Luna is in Greenpoint and he's trying to get some sushi. <laughs> and that's how this all starts. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, let's talk about Diego Luna. Like, a G. I, Diego man. Luna is absolutely... I don't know if you actually watch... Did you watch... Uh, his Narcos season. I started mm-hmm. it. I like, um, like he's also sort of starting that season. I think is like he. It starts with him intercepting like a raid by the Mexican National Police on a town that's harboring weed growers and like he's the local sheriff and then like he's just like they're holed up in the church I'll go in there and get them out for you and then like he brings you know 
Roth outside, beats him around with a revolver, and he's just kind of like, you know, I'm at your service. Like, he's the perfect steal the pack and help you look for it type, like, actor. <laughs> yeah. Because, I mean, like, he goes on to build from that. Like, it's just like it turns out that him and the guy he was smacking around were hiding, like, so many weed plants so that they could be the only, like, you know, distributor in town. And that's how they launched, like, a multinational cartel situation, blah, 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 blah. In Rogue One, like, he sort of announces himself by shooting the spy, you know? It's, like, sort of, like, the moment where it's just like, what? It's just like, we are we are here now. This is the world we live in. Things are different. There are no lightsabers for miles, you know? <laughs> like, this is... We, it's only gray out here on the outer rim type moment. And I know I do I do a lot of talking about physical acting, but like the point that he is like small and spindly, like they're they call yeah. attention to that too, like in the first episode of Andor. It's just like that's big talk for a small thing like you. Like he's good. Like it's also like the big pearly eyes and like the sheepishness that he can like call up but like the steeliness that he can also command, it's like sort of cat-like to where he's sheepish in the bar a little bit, right? And then it's like he kind of arches up and almost seems a little taller in the alleyway when he's just sort of like, all right, it's not going down like this when he ultimately kills most of the officers. And I don't think that there is a better sort of development in his story. Like what's the worst thing that could happen is also like a thing that you would like ask yourself as a writer, writing these sorts of scripts. And it's just like, after you've done all this sideways shit in rogue one, that is like anti-heroish. You want to kiss Jabba the Hutt. You're talking about it on, on all your press tours. You want to kiss Jabba, you know, <laughs> the first episode, you kill two police officers what is the worst thing that could possibly happen is he has to answer to his mother. And that's what happens. It's Fiona Shaw. And the way that like he can sort of curl into himself and sort of be like, hey, you know, oh, this mark on my face is nothing. It's nothing, mom. Like, you know, it's no worries. I've, I've, you know, I haven't been misbehaving. After doing all this steely, you know, ashy black t-shirt shit like out in the world. It's a very good like juxtaposition to establish very early on. And he's good at playing both of them because of like this sort of tenderness that he can call and push away in like in really good moments. Yeah, that tenderness is real. I do think that my favorite moments with him are kind of more like the like you're saying with the the police officers. The moments where he's exasperated and his eyes go wide and he's sort of <laughs> It's just, I don't know. Like I'm, a I'm a tourist. I'm a tourist. I'm a tourist. Or the part he's like haggling with them. I'm like, you, you really don't know how to weigh it. It's yeah, he's so, just kind of like, is, so is this upset. a test? Is this a test? He seems so genuinely upset. <laughs> he's just like, okay, I'm going to fly. He's just like, you're going to do what you're told. He's just like, I'm flying. Listen, if it's my ass on the line. I just like the fact that there is like you don't know what he wants like he's very good at being a leading like because you're not supposed to know what the leading man wants and like every character asks him along the way like what are you here for like what do you want and the first believable thing is when he's talking to Skeen played by uh 
um, I can't remember his name, but he also was like the older brother in the bear. Mm-hmm. Um, he was talking to Skeet. He's just kind of like, hey, what do you like? You know, what do you want? And it's just like, I still like, I don't know. I can't trust you because I don't know what you want type of meeting in the woods. And he's walking away and Diego Luna shouts after him. I want to win and walk away. And it's the first time that he says anything like believable with any kind of oomph to it in the show. And that's like all there really is. And every sort of decision he makes stems from that in a way that you can trace. I agree with all that. And I, I, I want to win and walk away, right, is, like, in a lot of ways, I guess the appeal of Cassian Andor in this, sh- like, how he's set up in this show is that it's kind of, kind of a retread of what Han Solo is all about in a lot of ways, right? At least the sort of, like, Han Solo that, you know, shot Greedo first, right, is, like, somebody who is kind of just, like, getting by in the universe and who like yeah is eventually going to get wrapped up in something um that's like bigger than him and that is attached to a cause but like yeah that sense of a morally gray survivalist archetype of a character who you have to kind of learn to like you know i don't know who feels cornered and kind of emotionally unavailable until we sort of pry him open right um and like after you know it's like after the original trilogy of star wars like i think han solo gets misused in a lot of ways most notably in solo <laughs> star wars story <laughs> right and it's just sort of like i don't know the way the way luna approaches cassian andor feels like okay we finally got back on track with what is it that people liked about han solo and sort of like rediscovering that by virtue of a of a not new because obviously Rogue One sets a lot of this up, right? But like, I don't know, keeping that legacy alive in the form of another character without sort of beating Han Solo to death. Yeah, like does that make yeah. sense? Yeah, I mean, like it's sort of he comes recommended and can do anything you ask of him, but don't ask too many questions. Type of character. Yeah. Um you know, doesn't like to be touched or, you know, (laughs) like, I I think it's just very like, so the relationships that he does form, I think like end up being transactional. And it's like always an interesting question about whether or not he wants more out of them. And like, it's like he can, Diego Luna is capable of like capturing all of that. Yeah, I mean, like he does a good job. <laughs> I think is what we're getting at here. Yeah, can we? Can you? Can you do like brief sort of summary overview of like where this is kind of going? Like, basically, we we sort of the bridge we have to build, right? Is like Cassian Andor, you know, like at the sort of peripheries of what becomes the Rebel Alliance, right? Right. Okay. So. Say that, like, after watching Cassian Andor walk on on screen and shoot his informant in Rogue One, you have four questions, which is, like, I mean, like, rudimentary ones. Why does he talk like that? 
why um did he shoot that guy like you know like where does where did he get the the medal for that um and like what does he want and where did he come from and i mean like so andor is answering maybe those questions for you and i think that what they do is like he's canari like canari is a remote planet that i think that like they kind of communicate what canari is to you through these scenes of um sort of like the lost kids from like hook roaming around yeah. in the jungle <laughs> yeah yes yeah. They're and and they have like their own like you know like they have face paint they have their own language that 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 has no subtitles it's just like you know like the what they are talking to a, each other about is communicated through like you know how hurried or how excited or how bright the language is or the facial expressions or the movements that are happening. It's all kind of context in these scenes. To that end, they all kind of wear, like pointing back to this Lost Kids things, they all kind of wear scalps from different like things of the Empire. Like their clothing is made from like partial survey corps uniforms, stormtrooper helmets, like they have straps of whatever, people that wandered into the woods and got stuck in their traps because they they use like blow darts and like the terrain. Yeah. Um, because the, 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 the area, Canari, you find out throughout the show was like too toxic for anything to live um, except for apparently these kids. Um, whatever it was, and uh, like it was maybe it was just sort of like nuclear war zone sort of situation. People would just land, crash land there. Their telemetry would go all over the place and they'd come wandering out of the wreckage, skin, you know, as green as Shrek. Like, and then they just collapse and die. Um, so that's where he came from. He was found by Fiona Shaw, who is Marva Andor, you know, sort of just like. Uh, scavenger Jane Goodall types character. <laughs> like I mean, like I like I can't really describe it any differently than that. Well, like, I'll accept that. I'll allow yeah, that. You know, like <laughs> like because because it is like it's just like her and her <laughs> her and her black bow go to like you know uh, <laughs> exotic locale to, uh, to 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 forage imperial star equipment and come across one of the native children that they just can't leave there like he'll just be better off with us so that's how Cassian becomes that's how Kaza becomes Cassian Andor yeah hmm. um, and when we meet him in Andor again he's already on he's, he's in Fort Green you know walking around in like a long coat looking for his sister who was one of these other Canari children you come to find out. Um, Fiona Shaw's character, Marva, doesn't think that she survived. It's sort of a pipe dream that, like, uh, that Cassian chases, that, like, maybe, just maybe, he's not alone in the universe. Um, 
Now, that's not something that you really ever get the sense that he thinks about beyond like really the first episode. Yeah, or... yeah they really. Yeah, I agree with that. It's, it's kind of weird, honestly. Yeah, it's kind of weird. Irrelevant it becomes, yeah. Um, but yes, that answers like, you know, the. Well, not really. Yeah, it kind of answers the like the the accent and where he comes from and so on and so forth. Why would he be so? Why would he be so cat like? I guess. <laughs> yes. Um, um, and, and like it is really just sort of like you get the sense that he was rolled into military service. He did. He escaped as soon as he could. He kind of has been, like you said, scrape, scraping out like this meager existence on the edge of the of the galaxy, and not trying to call too much attention to himself beyond that. At the beginning of the show, this episode is brought to you by Seven Eleven. Cold Slurpee drinks and a hot summer day are a match made in heaven, and your favorite refreshment just got even better. Let's talk about 7-Eleven's $1 small Slurpee drink with seven rewards. It's the classic frozen fizzy treat you can't get anywhere else. I'm a blue raspberry guy. Just know that about me. Know that about me going forward. Anytime there's a drink like this, I'm in on the blue raspberry. If you're feeling thirsty, feeling thirsty right now, how about going to visit a 7-Eleven valid through 1725? 7-Eleven has the right to end this promotion early, plus tax, participating U.S. stores, see app for full terms, all rights reserved. This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment, so it's important to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with 25,000 miles on. I got it to over 200,000 miles because I took care of it. You know how you take care of a car? You take care of the maintenance the oil, the brakes, all that stuff. And if you don't, you can have a car just completely fall apart. When your car needs maintenance, head to Jiffy Lube. They provide automotive excellence at speed. Get your oil changed, brakes checked, tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car. Jiffy Lube, car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit jiffylube.com. This episode is brought to you by Thomas's. Thomas's presents Technique with Tom. Slicing an English muffin with a butter blade? Boulder Dash. Just pull apart with your hands and marvel in the nooks and crannies splendor. For each one is unique like a snowflake. Thomas's. Huzzah! A toast to breakfast. It's, it's kind of like... I don't know how detailed we want to get walking through this sort of um, like everything, I guess, up to the big heist, right? Because this doesn't have to be like a recap episode. Like we're really, yeah, I, I mean, think, just spitballing about Andor. So it doesn't have to be that, but we're basically Rogue One is also a heist film. I think that like the first four or five episodes of Andor are a retread of that. Like yeah. Tony Gilroy being like, what if I had complete sway over this project from the beginning? Like, how would I set this up? Why, what, what would be the thing that they were stealing? Why would they need to do it? And, you know, what would be the comeback? What would be the comebacks? Um, like if it's existing inside of this bureaucratic nightmare, um, like, 
it might just be the accidental killing of two corporate security officers, Ritikops, right. like that are like, you know, drinking off their shift and harassing a local just because they need some place to feel powerful that day or whatever. Like it's, it starts from small things, like the small embers of rebellion or whatever. It's like Gilroy tried to find them. How does it build from, from, from this kid who wants nothing to do with anybody to him getting the plans for the Death Star and giving up his life to do it? Like, how do you get there? Um, I think small. Okay, so small embers of rebellion, right? Which is very much what the show is, right? Those yeah. small embers of rebellion. I think the other thing, because I'm just going to do this for the whole episode, where I draw a contrast with Andor and like both the Star Wars prequels and the sequels, right? Is like if you think about the prequels, right, and the whole big idea there being, well, one, the first big idea is like origin story of Darth Vader, right? Which fine, right. but then the second big idea being like. What's the origin story for the empire, right? What's the what were the politics that culminated in this and blah blah blah? blah and what were the Clone Wars and all that shit, right? And it's sort of like okay, the way Lucas goes about teasing all that stuff out, developing all that stuff in the prequels is this kind of big strokes melodrama about. Palpatine was behind it all and he orchestrated this basically amounts to like a mind control plot over the Jedi Council and the Galactic <laughs> Senate. And it's sort of it, everything that's done, I think, about the, you know, how did the Empire, how did Palpatine take over in the prequels? It's 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 like too big, frankly, would be my critique of it, right? It's yeah. all the strokes in which it's depicted are just... Outside of the stuff in The Phantom Menace that sort of walks you through the trade dispute, right? It's like everything is just almost too big picture in the prequels. And I think when we talk about like the, the, those like embers of the rebellion in Andor, I think the thing that's really refreshing about it is that no, it feels practical. It feels functional, right? You, you feel this sense of like, huh, yeah, like everyone keeps pointing out like, Life is getting worse. Increasingly, like people are patrolling through our town, like drones are flying over our yeah. houses. Like it's sort of that low level backlash of like, it's like so many scenes in Andor. It's the feeling of people just beginning to get fed up. You know what I mean? And that political reality of Andor feels yeah. so well executed consistently so, in every episode. And it's like, it's down to like, it's down to even like the score, which obviously Nicholas mm -hmm. Patel, like the percussion of the first two or three episodes is so well deployed. Like the Battle of Britain thing that I was talking about, like they have, uh, like of uh, the first couple episodes is basically that in miniature because I mean, I guess they recognize that cobblestones and mud is cobblestones and mud and boots stomping on them is boots stomping on them. So they have like these sort of rent-a-cops that after two of their owner get killed and the boss, you know, goes away. They are like, we're going to do our own sort of, you know, 
search and destroy mission. It's just like a bunch of people that would otherwise be sitting behind monitors all day are like, we want action suddenly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it ends in disaster because they're not ready for like how set up these people are. Like they they already have this sort of call. They have this sort of um, the bagging on the <laughs> a, they have, yeah they have an alarm system already. Like and it's people banging on the pots to let like other people down, like you know the street or down the holler or whatever you want to call it. Know that hey the cops are here and they're looking around. Board up, do whatever you need to do, gird your loins. And they're banging on the pots. And you, you can see that from like the way that people are running around and doing it and their expressions and how like businesses are closing up and things are going on. And like the juxtaposition of that with the way that all of these Riddicops are reading the situation lets you know that like disaster is about to happen because they're just like he's the serial con character. Um he's totally out of his depth realize that realizes like on the transport over that he's just the passenger on the mission that he spearheaded and like there's this sergeant character underneath him who's just basically like this round pink-faced man that stomps around going the, the way to keep the blade sharp is to use it and he's just like um that he hears the bang on the pots and Cyril's just kind of like, what's happening? And he's just kind of like, nothing, so intimidation. Uh, and it feeling already like that, that, that like small juxtaposition already being like, all right, well, this is going to be a story about how a rebellion starts. That's how it, that's like what it feels like. And then when it builds into the music at the end of the episode, it feels like something is really starting. <laughs> um, it's difficult to describe exactly how well they get that off. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, hmm. How should we, I want to get us to like Skarsgård. <laughs> should we just talk about Skarsgård? Right. I feel like we can't. Yes. Yeah. Right. Because, you know, this sort of hubbub is happening while Skarsgård is in town in his floor-length green velvet coat. Yes. His fits, by the Just way. Just terrific. Like, I mean, like, he stepped off of the train, which I guess, like, another, you know, one of these world notes is that it also looks like it could just be running on wheels. Like, the, the, the train that, like, he rides in on, it doesn't look like yeah. a space train mm -hmm. in any notable way. <laughs> I, I like I gotta keep you know making notes of those things. Anyway, I know you like, have no like, space diners, no yeah. like forty space diners in Andor. Yeah, there no horny space <laughs> diners in Andor. Yeah, like the the weirdest thing you'll see is the hair. Like that's yeah. it. But like the um, Skarsgård is Luthen, um, who kind of like is a nameless character for a couple of episodes. But you see, like in the subtitles, like because they got to designate the character by something sort of character. Like his anonymity is important to the plot line, but you, as a viewer, know who he is pretty early on. I guess is what I'm trying to get at. Mm -hmm. um, because I mean, like he just announces himself. He's tired of hiding. He's like sort of that's his whole bit. Is that like it's like it's time that we step out of the shadows. Um, so 
it's not really clear whether he's a resistance leader or a war profiteer or whatever it is, but like it seems that his heart is in the right place. Kind of he represents like the difficulty with resistance movements and like bridging the ideological differences between the factions that crop up within them. That's like his role in this story, I I would say. Yeah, and it's kind of like how it's how Andor sells the idea that this that that Andor is going to like go for a level of pseudo fictional political sophistication that Star Wars otherwise doesn't do, right? Even though again, it's like or it doesn't do well or it doesn't pull off. Yeah, it doesn't do well. Yeah, it does not yeah. pull off. Yeah, I agree with that. Um and I think he's really good at that, right? It's sort of like all of the subterfuge, all the behind the scenes stuff, all the factionalism stuff basically goes through him, right? And yeah. I don't know, in a lot of ways, I think he's like a really good, I mean, obviously I love Diego Luna's performance in this, but I do think that Luthen is such a good avatar for pretty much everything Andor does right, right? In terms of world building, yeah, um, and, and keep in mind, do you know what it is? It's like we're talking about the world building of Star Wars, right? Which is like mm-hmm. a thing that's been around since the 1970s, right? Has been right. belabored both under Lucas and then under Disney, right? And the fact that Andor can be kind of this late to the parade of Star Wars and all of its spinoffs and novelizations, and Andor can show up and be like, "Hey, actually, we can make we can make this universe that you've spent." effectively like more than half a century in at this point we can make it more textured than it's ever been before right and i think that's what like that's the that's the really cool thing about luthan right yeah yeah yes um it, luthan is the reason why you could call andor a political drama <laughs> yeah for sure um and not in the annoying way it's like there's a way there's a way you might hear that and go Oh, Star Wars trying to be political in this really wonky way. And it's not. It's, yeah, it's, it's not. It's different. It's it's not like, you know, in the beginning of the Phantom Menace where they're just kind of like, okay, so the Jedi are going as ambassadors to uh, this new, uh, to the Separatists who are, oh, wait, okay, so the Separatists are <laughs> um, these. This this cadre of wealthy trade unions, and wealthy Japanese trade aliens. unions are, and the Republic is. Oh, yeah. and a trade dispute is like that's what right. like the Phantom yeah. Menace feels like. Like yeah. <laughs> this is like sort of political intrigue evaluated by personal cost. Like yeah, mm-hmm. and Luthen is the person that is like. He goes around exacting that cost. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He like he's the person that goes around slapping his hand down the table, being like, "All right, listen, enough games. This is what it's going to cost you." <laughs> and then laughing it off as you leave, right? Doing the sort of like fake, the fake wave. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I like it. Is those scenes are like the acting with that in acting <laughs> scenes are yeah. so phenomenal. Oh my god! Like Luthen and Mod Matha are so good. <laughs> it's um yeah, it's Genevieve O'Reilly. Like mm-hmm. and 
she, or sorry, Jean-Vierre, or I'm, if I'm mispronouncing it, the two of them, like, having those standoffs in the showroom where he's, like, they're in full view of her driver who is, like, you know, paid to spy on her. Her car is yeah. bugged up because her husband is one of the evil imperialists that, you know, she fights against in the Senate every day. Um, so they'll be standing in this showroom of, like, ancient war antiques because that's what Luther poses at poses as in the daytime as is an antiques reseller and he is like they they established that by him putting on this wig at the end of like you know uh the second episode um and it's pretty great because he also does this twirling hand thing like and like gracefully and grandfully you can like hear him saying in his head <laughs> and like those are the kind of motions that he makes as he's just kind of like you know you got to crack an omelet. You got to crack a few eggs to make an omelet type speeches that he's giving while he's making these movements. And she has to keep a straight face. And like, while she's on the verge of tears, because, you know, like moving things an inch to the right could, you know, bring her entire facade crumbling down on top of her. Cause she has to keep a home life going and she has to be in the cement. And she, you know, like she's also funding like, this burgeoning resistance, but like she can't, it can't be traced back to her because, because, because. And those scenes are like genuinely exhilarating, like more so than like the escapes or the chases, even. Oh. Yeah. And it's also that, like, so the thing you were talking about, like the speech of, or the, the sort of cold open up top, where you're doing the speech about like the different uh, political elements of what becomes the Rebel Alliance. It's also that, like, that Luthen Monmatha contrast, right, is also that there's a difference in temperaments. Like, even setting aside whatever the sort of fictional space politics differences are, it is that, like, Luthen is a sort of move fast, break shit person, right? Like, he is, he is trying to radicalize you, and he does the same thing to Cassian Andor, right? Whereas, you're right, Monmatha is kind of like a resistance mom, and also, like, a really well-paid like senator who's yeah, like, like what you about know, reform? She... Yeah, <laughs> yeah like, what it's, about? <laughs> it's it's basically yes, all the way down to the extremist Saw Guerrero who finally gets like it gets like I can't tell you how grateful I was for 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 the Saw Guerrero appearance. Not and not like you know in some like I want a whole like you know. Saw Guerrero in the partisan show, or you know, like he should have had more screen time in Rogue One or whatever. But like mm-hmm. we talked about this on the Forrest Whitaker episode, it was whack. <laughs> it was whack what they did to him, man. Like he, like they show up and he's like, you know, he says, like, are you, are you here to kill me? Like there's, I've, there's but pieces of me left. Like it was literally like him being a shell of a man, furthering the plot in a specific way like radicalizing Jin or so further. And here it's just him kind of explaining the way the world is to you and to Luther. Yeah. Um, you know, sitting resplendent in his war torn battle armor, looking younger, speaking faster, more cogently, more reasonably than he does. than he gets to be in rogue one because this is an earlier point in time. Right. But, yeah, and like it's 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 such a fun scene. 
Cause it's like he comes, he really comes off the top rope. Cause it's like, de- like it feels like it's, you know, quiet pitter patter. You know, we're volleying back and across the net, and then he just goes into outer space with it. Yeah, last like, kid Scotland. Yeah, yeah. It's it's so <laughs> it's so good. It's such a good appearance. Um, we don't have to. Okay, so like we. Uh, I'll be trite and just summarize. It's like Luthen jumps, Luthen j- jumps Cassian Andor into this heist, right? Yeah. No one's really happy to be working together. You got these people training in the woods like Al Qaeda for <laughs> what is going to be like. How much is it? They steal like a quarter's worth of payroll it's for a an mo- entire. Like, it's a it's a month's payroll for an entire sector. Yeah, and they don't have like Bitcoin, so it's like hardware, bro. There is not. They're not stealing, you know, PayPal account pallets of gold. It's pallets of gold, bro. Um, rolled up like one's mom's curlers is the, how they're shaped, and it's like they gotta fly it out, right? They do. They have this elaborate sort of like way they sneak into the base. Stuff goes wrong. They pull it together. There's the beautiful sort of like the getaway is beautiful, dog. Like, think about how many times Star Wars has to pull this bullshit of like, okay, some dramatic thing happens. And then the sort of the, you know, it ends with the chase through an asteroid field or some shit. Right. And it's like, I don't know. Like, again, I'll go to Attack of the Clones and be like, I remember as a kid when I went and saw that movie and it came out, I can tell you the moment I fell asleep watching Attack of the Clones release day was that stupid chase with uh, Jango Fett in the asteroid field, right? It's like Star Wars has done it to death. And yet Andor, like the escape from the heist, bro, with the little meteor shower shit is is beautiful. Is absolutely gorgeous. But they also like had time to set it up. Like it was like this festival, like that was, you know... Um, that was put on every year by the indigenous peoples, like as a seasonal holiday sort of thing. Um, it's dying out because of the chokehold that the empire is putting on the valley for its uh resource rich, you know, soil, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But then also, like, you've got the parallel running with this, like, Al Qaeda group in the woods of like Alex Lothar, which you might remember from like the end of the fucking world. Um, he is sort of like this twitchy teenage fanatic, basically like the, the, the real true believer quote unquote amongst the group, like espousing like the politics of what the rebel should be. Right. He's just a bleeding heart idealist. Um, finger shaky on the trigger which ultimately is like you know a bad thing for the group but he's there to talk to Andor about you know what he believes in just like everybody else but there's also this scene where he's trying to teach him about um, navigation like star pass stuff because to to Cassian it's just a box you know you just need to give me some numbers so that I can drive us to a place yeah. And he's just like, and uh, 
Alex Lothar's character, Nimic, is trying to explain to him that, like, no, navigation, like, sets you free. If you can learn to do it on this thing, like, nobody can cage you in, blah, 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 blah. But you get the sense that it's not as easy as it otherwise would be in travel in the Star Wars universe to punch in hyperspace codes and, like, you know, we push the one gauge forward and then we jump to hyperspace and we're out of here. This escape, you're getting the sense, won't be that simple. Like, the the thing that they're driving is basically a garbage truck. We have to get it off the rail. We have to navigate out of the asteroid field and we can't jump to hyperspace because they have whatever kind of tracking, blah, 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 blah. We're going to be using, we're going to be driving manual, basically. So all of that is happening to lead up to this amazing escape scene where they're climbing and getting battered around by asteroids and this beautiful horizon is coming up to greet them and Alex Lothar has had his legs crushed and he's he's holding like the because he was in the back of the thing between some pallets when the thing took off because they were in the middle of a firefight and they're just like we're going to give him a med stick and give him his navigation box and he's going to get us out of here and he's bleeding from the mouth and calling out numbers and it is like you said it's truly like a it's it's it was surprising how like engaged I was in it, considering how many times they've done this exact sort of getaway in the Star Wars universe. It's also it's funny because it's like yeah, he's calling out that it's like it's Diego Luna's panicking, like Andrew's panicking, and he's both like calling out the numbers, but he's also just saying stuff like "go up, okay, now Climb. go down." <laughs> yeah, <laughs> just go uh, down, go up, go down. Dive. He's like. Climb. <laughs> yeah, it's just, it's so like, what is going on here? I have no idea, but I'm invested and I hope these guys make it. Um, yeah, man. Um, it is, it's, we don't, wait, we have to talk about the ISB. We have to talk about the security bureau because it's like, we don't have to work all the way up to where this show currently is. Like, look, like lots of things happen, they get away kind of messy from the heist then there's some police this robot police brutality is a lot of shit happens we're really trying to talk about like i think the components of the show i think the isb dog the isb these people like (sighs) again Um, there's nothing there's lots of different Star Wars can be a lot of different things to a lot of different people. I, I really don't want people to come away thinking that I'm I, I'm coming from a perspective of thinking that like, yeah, any anytime Star Wars tries to be whimsical is bad. And when it tries to be bureaucratic and grown up. No, it's but good. like it's really the thing about that this show strikes well is its confidence and commitment to the idea that evil is banal. Like it's just mm-hmm. very like I mean, like, think about it. If we we both are people that like the like we like the prequels, like I like, or at least Phantom Menace is yeah. like a good movie. And I think that, like, you know, probably maybe for different reasons. I, for one, think that Darth Maul is so fucking cool. Like the way yeah. that the Sith yeah. are styled is so cool. All of, like they like the 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 cloaks, the face paint, the ho- the metal horn, like the everything is the double edged lightsabers is like meant to make evil not only look formidable but intelligent and sexy and you know 
maybe even a little, a little bit desirable in the course of like whether you should choose the light or the dark path. Like it's supposed to be seductive. And here it's like evil is totally banal. Like it's totally banal. Like it's indifferent to like what it crushes underfoot. And like the show communicates that through the ISB and like it's, it's sterile hallways and it's tight uniforms that nearly choke the people that wear them in the expressionless way that they choke down criticism. Yeah. It's, it's like all of that is so like the, and, and there's no character in a black cloak that storms in and, you know, does magic. At it people. does magic <laughs> at people. Yeah. Like it is seven episodes before you see a stormtrooper. You know what I mean? Like there's, yeah. there's, I, there's no, there's not even a hint of a lightsaber. Like Donnie Yim was in Rogue One with the, with the bow staff because he couldn't have a dual lightsaber and he was still walking the Jedi path. We needed somebody to do the hand to hand stuff. Nobody is good at hand to hand combat in the show. Yeah. It, it's also like, I, I get your points about the banality. It's just like, yeah, you're sitting in the sort of contentious ISB meetings, right? And these breakout sessions. And it's like, you are looking at a bunch of like, well-paid bureaucrats who are trying to hit their numbers, right? And who are trying yeah. to climb climb over each other on the career ladder, right? And who are trying to make the minute they're trying to make the meeting end on time, right? Like that's how, you know what I mean? Like that's what it means to talk about like the banality of evil in the context of something like this, right? Is that like, I don't know, you watch, like you could get the mistaken impression after watching a lot of mainline Star Wars that like, okay, so you telling me this whole intergalactic conflict is about three dudes. It's just about the will of, you know, Darth Vader, Emperor Palpatine, and then I guess like Kylo Ren. And it's like, no, it's like, they, like every time you watch a Star Destroyer eat shit, right? You're watching like, how many people is that, right? And it's not to say that everything, again, has to be like a gritty, what if Star Wars was more like real life? But it is more like, yo, the entire power of the Empire is not the fact that like, Darth Vader is nice with the lightsaber. It's the fact that Darth Vader is nice with the lightsaber and he commands this massive apparatus of underlings who are all sort of like it's on edge and trying to outperform each other in this like sprawling bureaucratic nightmare that is the Galactic Empire. And that's what the show is. That's it's, what's so it's Darth Vader about. has a lightsaber and doesn't even have to take it out of its doesn't have to take it off its off his belt like it's the power of the empire is that they never even have to lift their hand is like what the is kind of what the show is trying to communicate to you like the title of the of of the ninth episode which i think is the most recent one that's out is called yeah. nobody's listening nobody's listening yeah like there's kind of this prevailing sense of hopelessness um in the show that um, I think that like, you know, Star Wars might not typically allow itself, but it's not oppressive. Like there is, like I'm saying, like the, the, the stormtroopers showing up in the seventh episode also has purpose. It's not like, you know, a sort of 
IP thing where it's just kind of like, hey, this is what, hey, remember where you are? Remember what we're doing? It's sort of like, what would, and it's not even whole stormtroopers. You see a row of stormtroopers or like a one troop patrolling like a city street at knee height. Like, that's it. Like, it's just sort of like we are, like it's it's sort of like you're meant to feel the presence of stormtroopers around and what they leave in their wake, which is which happens to be a lot, and it's not always something that's considered in Star Wars. And yeah, like it doesn't need to be like oh look at the dire cost of civilization when communications break down between blah de, blah de, blah de, blah, but you can tell a simple story about carnage. <laughs> in an effective way yeah i mean i guess like going out talking about nine we should i guess we should just note it's like they get the heist off one of the people that's part of the team tries to betray them cassian's like nah fuck that shoots him he's like i'm gonna go get away clean move to fake barcelona and just like sit on my cut right and he tries to do this and then he just gets wrapped up in some street bullshit (laughs) That puts him in jail. He's like, I'm a tourist. This is where the I'm a tourist. I'm a tourist. I mean, like he gets, he's walking around outside in his in his flowy striped linen pants and in his espadrilles on the beach, and he gets braced up by the cops, thrown in the back of a paddy wagon for disorderly conduct, and then shipped off to a supermax prison in the middle of the ocean, surrounded by six whirlpools for six years. <laughs> uh, you know what's... Okay, can I say something about the prison? I don't think the prison's that bad either. Like, if you gave me the choice between working in a Foxconn factory that is six the scary years thing and going to this the, prison... <laughs> that is the scary thing about this prison. The, th- the, the, the thing is, is that this is such a deft (laughs) like it's such a deft uh kind of torturous experience that like it it's like almost like oh you as like when you first looking at it when you when you show up to this prison and you see like how futuristic it is and how clean everything is and how nice it looks. It's an Apple store. The, you're yeah, in the Apple store. <laughs> you think about like, oh yeah, it's just like, like maybe you're like, yeah, this is nice. I could do this or whatever. And it's just like nice enough and clean enough for you to walk around barefoot in. Heated floors. Heated floors. <laughs> Heated floors. Ocean view. Like, and then they have this thing where they're just like, oh yeah, the floors, they're also tungstoid. Uh, I guess you're wondering how we managed to keep this prison and so many people in it without any weapons. And they're, they come clonking out in these boots, like the ones that uh, Nick Cage and John Travolta, like Nick Cage was wearing a face-off. You remember? We used to walk around like, I'm Caster Troy. Those, he's, it's those gigantic ski boot looking things. Yeah. And they're just kind of like, and then he pulls out this uh he pulls out a device and presses the button on it and everybody starts just contorts and collapses into a heap like in and screaming and agonizing pain and then they collapse and everybody's exhausted it's just like they the floor will send an electrical shock through you at random times (laughs) 
Like, so, nah, no, thank you very much. I would like to, I'll jump back off into the ocean and die. I mean, really? Because think about it. All you do, okay, like, like I'm going to upsell a little bit. They got Andy Circus in there as part of the, the you know, he's, in, he's the prisoner in charge of the little block that Cassian Andor ends up in. And it's basically like a Toyota plant, bro. Like, all they have to do is work these 12-hour shifts every day where <laughs> they assemble this weird-looking, looks like the bottom of a desk chair, but scaled to the size of a car. And they just do that for 12 hours it and they go. It looks like they spend 12 hours <laughs> in teams of six, 12-hour shifts, yeah. building the steering rack for, like, you know, Star Destroyers, maybe. I don't know. Yeah. Like, the point is, I also think it's pointed that you have no idea what it is that they're building and that there may be no point to it at all. Yeah, and it's pointed, right, that, like, anytime you see them doing it, you're just like, no, really, why can't they just have the droid that drops the parts in this room in the first place do this? <laughs> exactly. You know what I mean? It's like, why do they even... And at one point, they say something like, it's easier to replace us prisoners than it is even... It's like cheaper... It's cheaper to maintain and replace, you know, these low lives than it is to maintain and replace droids. droids. Right? Um, um, but... Um, Andy Circus is like the floor manager, um, the field boss, or whatever. Like the, he the mad prisoners, as fuck. <laughs> yeah, the prisoners don't even base the prisoners don't even really run the prison. It's these sort of floor bosses. I like. I was thinking sort of like a way the way that like Thai prisons are kind of laid out because they sort of have these giant cells where there are large groups of men and there will be like one sort of. What you bane now? How you know it is? Well, hold on now. Uh, I was watching this uh, 2017 movie called A Prayer for Dawn, which has uh, Joe Cole from um, Gangster Gangster like uh, and um, oh Gangs of London, excuse me, and Peaky Blinders. Um, he's in this sort of vaguely art house drama about this kind of dead ender English boxer that has too many concussions and goes on a drunken Thailand and gets arrested and ends up in a Thai boxing in a Thai prison and then kind of wins or works towards his freedom through like Thai boxing. And I like the way that the prisons were run was so interesting to me. I kind of like kept reading up on it. Mm-hmm. But yeah, like it is sort of a similar like floor boss sort of situation that you're seeing there or whatever. Like, you know, um, it's sort of there will be the big man that's like everything will be fine as long as you like, you know, put your dishes away and you do your work and you close and you turn the lights off at the right time type of character. Yeah. And that's what Circus is down to like the very end of the ninth episode where and they call a lot of attention to this one older man that's working on uh, Diego Luna's team named Olaf. Like it's mm-hmm. several excruciating scenes where he's just not keeping up with the pace of work. Like he can't get the socket wrenches in place or get the machine in place and he's growing frustrated with himself like that he can't keep up which is like the part that really makes it excruciating 
so much so that like he wo- overworks himself and has a stroke. And it's like Diego Luna and Andy Serkis are caring for him like in the hallway by themselves. Like they're like, we get a medic in here. And Diego Luna's looking at like this guy who he has developed a fondness over for like the last 47 days, like a protectiveness over even like over the last 47 days, not necessarily anything like friendship, but like, he's just like, Oh, like this could like, he doesn't look good. Like he doesn't we need look to good, yeah. get, like we need to do something, get him to a sick bay, blah, 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 blah. Meanwhile, Andy Circus is bending over him, checking, like, you know, peeling his eyelids open and checking his temperature, talking about like, it's cool. You know, like you just got, you only got 40 days left on your sentence. We just got to get you something that's going to get you back up and back to work. Like he's going to go back to work right now. Like is what he's thinking. Like, you know, it's cool. We just, we just need to get you back up on your feet. It's, it's straight. Like, you and he keeps saying like, you've only got 40 days left. You've only got 40 days. It's just, we just need to get him back on his feet. And the medical attendant that comes in in so few words is just like, I don't actually help anybody. Like I just put people out of their misery and tell people when they can't work anymore, which is when they just need to be killed off and replaced. Which is more than Circus can take. Like it's like there is, because he starts, he's introduced being like, I have 249 days left of my sentence. Do not fuck it up for me. My floor runs on, I'm, there are five floors I'm used to finishing in the top three, but you better work your ass off. And if you do that, we'll be fine, blah, blah, blah. Like, you know, he eats the food out of his tube. He rolls over and goes to bed at 930. He gets everybody out of bed on time and marching in place and does everything correct. And then this happens and he's, it's, it's just, and the guy's just like, you, you're going to want to keep a lid on your men. And he's just like, what the fuck do you mean? And meanwhile, like, as we are getting a sense of, uh, circus's sense of, uh, responsibility and duty, like Diego Luna is already laying the bedwork for an escape. Um, you know, removing how many panels. guards work on each floor? Yeah, yeah. He's like <laughs> removing panels and sawing pipes, and like you know, looking. Ar- his eyes are darting around the room all the time, and then he's just like, you know, like how many guards are on each floor? Circus is just like, you know, you know, you could get. They'll kill you for even thinking about that. And this is the point at which Diego is like, nobody's listening. But you know, Circus just has this all paralyzing fear that like, you know, if I even think out of line, it's going to fuck, it's going to add days to my sentence the whole time, refusing to even answer the question of how many guards are on the floor. So after this happens, Olaf like suffers a stroke and then is euthanized right in front of him. And and they're like, you know, get back on program, get back to work. As they're walking back down the corridor, and this is the end of the ninth episode, Diego Luna asks again, how many guards are on each floor? And without missing a beat, Andy Circus says, never more than 12. Yeah. And, and it's, it's like, it's yeah. such a good, it's such a good bookend to that episode too. And it's, it's a book, it's a good bookend to what we were saying in the, in like earlier toward the beginning, right? It's like, they don't give Circus this moment where it's like, oh, he sees Olaf die and then he just, it's over the top and he's like, I hate the empire. And instead it's this moment where it's like, like everything else in Andor, it's that kindling. It's the sense of kindling. It's the sense of everyone being 
it, it's the show is always spending time with people who are just beginning to get fed up. With just beginning to crack. Yeah. Yeah. And that's what's so great about the end of like I said, that most recent episode. Um, I think we covered a lot. I don't know. I think there's, we, we could have obviously gone into more detail with stuff like the heist and um, the prison stuff, but it's just like, I think this is a good, you know, high level conversation about Andor, which is just like a really good Star Wars thing. Like a shockingly good modern Star Wars thing. Um, and good in a way that's very different from like, you know, like the Mandalorian, which is also good. And we talked about, but it's sort of, this is the Mandalorian was good. Cause it was a good hang. Whereas this show, I just find it's a confident, good story. Yeah. Yeah. It's like an engaging story. Um, it's just very, the execution is good. And yeah, it picks up a lot of things that were cool about Rogue One and just does the, it really kind of commits to them in a really gratifying way. Um, but I think that's all I got about it. What about you? Yeah, I think that's it. Yeah. Um, Mike, I'm going to be in Mexico, man. The fire rises. The fire rises. The I'll be in Mexico. Rises. Listeners and Micah, I'm going to tell you, first of all, Micah, you get a shout out in the, the latest piece that I filed, which when it comes out, I'll be in Mexico. Um, Shawshank Redemption style um, about Atlanta. <laughs> I've written one final piece about Atlanta. You are quote, you're not quoted, but you're like paraphrased in it. Um, <laughs> listeners, please read it. It's very paraphrasable. It's my, you know, our, our journeys as writers much less podcasters regarding Atlanta have been long. Uh, I actually had like fun writing this piece. I kind of like got a lot of things off my chest. It feels very cathartic uh, and ambivalent, but nonetheless, like I feel, I feel like I came down to a very charitable place in this article and I hope people read it. Um, I don't know. I'm just, well, first of all, wait, hold on. Let me take that again, Stefan. Um, <clears throat> listeners, by all means, email us about Andor, about Atlanta, about whatever potential mailbag stuff that you might want us to quote on air at some point at soundonlypod at gmail.com. I'm Justin Charity. And I'm Michael Peters. Shouts out to our producer, Stefan Anderson. We'll see y'all next week. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You might say all kinds of stuff when things go wrong, but these are the words you really need to remember. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. They've got options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, file a claim right on the State Farm mobile app, and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there.